This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 132. Psalm 132, verses 1 through 18. Page 519 in the few Bibles. We go from uh, one of the shortest of the Psalms of Ascent we saw last week, looked at last week, Psalm 131, uh, to the longest here in Psalm 132. Still uh, at most medium-length psalm as far as psalms go, uh, maybe even toward the shorter side compared to many of them, but uh, the longest of the Psalms of Ascent. So we pick up Psalm 132, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed if I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephratah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray before we study this passage. Father, we do pray because we need your help. We need your light. We need your grace. We need your spirit. And Father, we thank you for this beautiful, beautiful psalm that we have just read. And uh, Lord, as we think about it together, we pray that you would guide us and to think about it rightly and to take from it those things that you would teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Characteristic of these psalms of ascent is, as we've seen, the theme of pilgrimage, of the various uh, families or tribes, the people making their way to the city of Jerusalem 
the, uh, the, the spiritual center of the nation uh, for the purpose of keeping the feasts and the theme of traveling, uh, the dangers of the open road uh, are prominent in these psalms, but also uh, the, the celebration of the city itself, of Jerusalem. We've seen that uh, perhaps most uh, explicitly in Psalm 122. Uh, verse 3, Jerusalem, built as a city that's bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up. It's not only a, a, a meditation on the journey, but it's also a meditation on the destination, on Jerusalem. And this is, in a sense, another one of those psalms that reflects on Jerusalem as the place where the temple is, on the place where God's presence is centered and, and, and symbolized in the presence uh, of the temple uh, and, the, and the, the holy of holies there in the inner part of the temp- temple where God dwells with his people. Uh, Psalm 132 reflects on that and not just the political significance of Jerusalem or Zion, but primarily its spiritual significance. And so as we look at this psalm, we need to keep that in mind. This would be those who are later thinking about the temple, thinking about how the temple came to be, thinking about how the Lord worked, uh, not only to bring the temple into being, but the significance of that for his people then, and as I hope we'll see studying this psalm, significance for his people now. So let's take a look. The psalm falls really into two parts, fairly fairly obvious parts. The first half, verses 1 through 10, and then the second half, verses 11 through 18. And the first part of this psalm, the first half of it, really focuses on David's oath to the Lord, David's intentions toward the Lord. Uh, And this psalm does not occur in a vacuum. Uh, While it's reflecting on those things, it really draws its structure from 2 Samuel 7, which we saw earlier. Now, it begins uh, with David's resolution, as we saw in 2 Samuel. Uh, I'd see again here, David's seeing that things have reached a point of being settled such that he thinks, well, here I am. I have this nice home to dwell in, but what about the Lord? And so it's his, as Nathan the prophet says to him, well, you do, go ahead and do what, um, what you intend to do. And that's what these first verses are thinking about. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and bowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, it speaks of David's hardships uh, that he endured. We may not really think about it that way. That may seem an odd way to put it. But if you think about David's life, it in many ways was, at various points, a hard life. Uh, from very humble beginnings to, um, to being anointed and yet not uh, having become king. Instead, in Saul's jealousy, being hunted, chased, threatened, uh, living in the wilderness, on the run. David lived a pretty hard life. Of course, later, uh, some of the hardship that he endured was self-inflicted through his own sin. 
But we think of some of the hardship, and even in connection with the, the Ark of the Covenant that symbolized God's covenant and the, the dwelling place of God, that God's dwelling with his people, uh, when he was bringing that up to Jerusalem, uh, we, we find uh, incidents happening that David struggled with. That's when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. Uh, they were doing so in a cart, which was not how it was to be carried. It was to be carried on poles inserted through rings. Maybe they were following the example of the Philistines who had returned the Ark of the Covenant after capturing it and that uh, was, was a fairly uh, malignant uh, object in their presence. They started suffering because of the presence of the Ark. And so the Philistines sent it back. Uh, but they did so on a cart with, with oxen. And uh, when they were bringing the Ark up with David uh, to Jerusalem, it's on a cart. The oxen stumble. The Ark sort of totters. And a man named Uzzah reaches out his hand to stabilize it. Well, one reason they were to carry it with poles inserted through rings was so that they wouldn't touch the ark. Well, Uzzah, with good intentions, no intention to desecrate anything uh, or to cause sacrilege, reaches out and touches the ark to steady it, and immediately God strikes him dead. And David was appalled. Uh, back in Second Samuel chapter six, we read of his his reaction to uh, to all of this. Verse eight: David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. The place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And not only was he angry, David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, "How can the ark of the Lord come to me?" So much so he he didn't even, he stopped bringing it up. Verse 10, he wasn't willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and it stayed there three months, and all kind of blessings came to Obed-Edom, the Gittite, because he had the ark of the covenant dwelling with him. So David said, well, here, let me get that. So you can read the rest of that uh, there. And they do bring it on up. But then they're bringing it up to Jerusalem, and another hardship for David on a very personal level. David is so excited, celebrating, dancing, carrying on, and his wife, Michael, sees him, and she just feels utter contempt for him. In fact, later she says, how can you carry on like that, making a complete fool out of yourself in front of all Israel? And David basically says, you know, I'm, I'm going to continue to make a fool out of myself for the Lord. But that must have hurt that his own wife looks at him in his, his zeal for the Lord with contempt. And David had zeal for the Lord. There, there, he was no halfway kind of guy. Either he was dancing in celebration or he was angry at the Lord. But there tended to not be much in between. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the, the, the preacher, uh, comments on zeal. And, you know, it's worth thinking about our own heart for God. If we're hot, cold, or indifferent. Lukewarm, I believe, is the biblical term. Spurgeon says, believe me, brethren and sisters, if you, have, if you never have sleepless hours... And remember what he says here, he, he will not enter his house, not get into bed, not give sleep to his eyes or slumber to his eyelids. Spurgeon says, if you never have sleepless hours, if you never have weeping eyes, if your heart never swells as though, they, though it would burst, you need not anticipate that you will be called zealous. You do not know the beginning of true zeal, for the foundation of Christian zeal lies in the heart. The heart must be heavy with grief. It must beat high with holy ardor. The heart must be vehement in desire, panting continually for, David, for God's glory. And that was David's heart. He had a heart for God. And that's reflected in this, this, this zeal, this desire 
that at this point the Lord should have a house. There should be a place. And he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant up, and he wants then to build this, this temple for it. And Nathan said, go ahead. But then the Lord comes to Nathan, the prophet, and says, tell David no. Tell him no. He, he doesn't need to build a house for me. In fact, later it turns out it's Solomon who will build, build the temple. Sometimes we do have zeal for God. And all kinds of holy and pure and good intentions to do things for the Lord, whatever it might be. Maybe it's to go into missionary service. Maybe it's to do this or that. And through various ways, the Lord says to you, no. You know, that's a good desire. It's a good intention. Needs to be done. You're just not the one to do it. I have other plans for you. Uh, and David supported Solomon in, in that work, was behind that work. But David wasn't the one to do it. God used David in many ways, but building that permanent temple in Jerusalem was not God's intention for how David would be used. And so we need to recognize, zeal for the Lord's a good thing, but we also need to be willing to hear no from God and abide by that. Well, then in verses 6 and 7, we have the people's response. And whether it's envisioning the people's response in David's own day, or the con- with this psalm, the contemporary people reflecting back on those events, there, there's, a, there's an excitement. We've heard of it in Ephratah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. David's zeal is to have that place for the Lord. The people's response was, let's go. Let's go and do it. Which, of course, they do in the pilgrimage. They've gone to Jerusalem. That's part of the, part of the, uh, the nature of the psalm. And then there's this, this petition, uh, again, whether the people of David's time or the people of the Psalm of Ascent's time, uh, where there's this, this prayer for the Lord to be there, to meet with them there. Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. So whether it's the people of David's day, the people of this psalm, there there is this desire that God would be there in his dwelling place and that when the people come, that he would meet with them there. And, of course, that's true not just in those two situations, David's or the psalm of ascent, but it's true of ours as well. Uh, there should be an excitement about going to to meet with the Lord and, and, uh, and desiring that he would come and be with his people. In fact, that's structured into every worship service that we do uh, each Sunday morning here, the invocation... And Sunday evening, the invocation is invoking the presence of God. It's essentially this petition that the Lord would meet with his people, that he would come and meet with us as we gather to, uh, to meet with him. So that's the first half of this psalm. It has to do with that intention of David to, to bring the ark up to its place in Jerusalem, even his intention to build a house, which, of course, Solomon would later do, and that that would be the place, the, the Lord's place, God's place where he would come, his people would come, and they would meet together. Now, the second half of the psalm has to do then with the Lord's response to David. And again, reflecting 2 Samuel 7, it's, the, it's David's intention to build a house, but the Lord says, well, go, Nathan, go tell David, no, he's not the one to do that. However, that's not the end of what the Lord says, is it? The Lord says, but I will build for him a house. Uh, play on words, uh, a dynasty, and uh, his his son will build a temple, and uh, he will never fail to have a man sitting on the throne ruling over Israel. Well, the second half of the psalm reflects then that Lord's oath to David, 
By the way, uh, and I, I know I've mentioned this before, you may or may not remember it, uh, 2 Samuel 7 is one of those turning points in Scripture. It is a chapter like Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, uh, and others that, uh, that you should know. You know. 1 Corinthians 15, resurrection of Jesus, that should come to mind. Key turning point passages. 2 Samuel 7 is one of those passages that you should know. Uh, because you know, in Scripture, in covenant theology, we see from the fall onward one overarching covenant of grace. But that covenant of grace takes different forms as it goes through the Scripture. It's administered a little differently, and each time it seems to grow larger in its scope and its uh, breadth. But Second Samuel 7 is known as the, the, the institution of the Davidic covenant, the covenant with David that has to do with uh, that, that descendant of David who would always be on the throne of Israel. Now, without tracing out all the history to uh, cut to the end of the story, of course you know that, that that true son of David was none other than Jesus himself. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this covenant, as he is all of those covenants, in that they point to him and they, it, they are fulfilled in him. He is the one who reigns over the people of God who reigns over Israel forever. And in fact, there's just a hint of that at the end of verse 10. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The word Messiah means anointed one. It's a Greek equivalent in the New Testament. Christ means anointed one. So this is pointing toward Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ. But just remember Second Samuel 7. If you have to write it in one of the front pages of your Bible or something, uh, or put a post-it note in if you don't want to write your Bible. That's a chapter to know, because it really is a significant turning point in Scripture. Well, what about the Lord's oath then to David? Well, there are a number of, rule, of words that can kind of capture each little section here in the second half. The first one is rule. Rule. Uh, notice 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, my testimonies that I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Now it's put in human terms. The descendants of David. Uh, it's put uh, in, in plural. But of course, ultimately, they failed. They didn't keep the covenant like they should have. But there was one who did. The Lord Jesus tempted at every point, and yet did not sin, was always faithful, loyal, in covenant to his heavenly Father. It's the perfect king. But, but rule, to, to sit on the throne, is, 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 it refers to rule, to governing, to reigning. And so this first element has to do with rule, that this, this son of David would rule. Uh, verses 13 and 14 refer to, uh, to presence, not, not like Christmas presents, but to the presence of God. 13 through 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. The presence of the Lord. The, the rule uh, through the son of David. The presence of God with his people. In other words, worship. Verse 16. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. Of course, under the old form of the covenant of grace, there was a human priesthood. That too pointed toward and was fulfilled in Christ. He is our great high priest. Uh, that's why we no longer have a human priesthood. Christ fulfilled that. We go to the Father through him. But we come uh, now through the priestly work of Christ, the one who provided sacrifice for our sins, 
the go-between between a holy God and sinful people, uh, we come and worship through him, through the priesthood of Christ, and we shout for joy now in the presence of God, the holy ones, the people of God, verse 16. So there's rule and uh, blessing and presence and worship. And then in verses 17 and 18, triumph, victory. Who wants to be part of a kingdom that fails? Nobody. Well, this one doesn't. This one triumphs. It holds the victory. Verses 17 and 18. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. Ouch, sounds painful. What's he talking about? Well, not literally a horn out of David's head, but horn as a symbol of strength. Other Psalms will say, you know, I will lift up my horn or you will lift up the horn of salvation. Uh, the horn is the idea, you know, of a, of a mighty ox or something with his horn and the strength that it represents. Well, that's what it's a symbol of. It's the strength of David. Uh, a horn to sprout for David, growing strength. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. Illumination, light, wisdom. Uh, verse 18, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So their clothes are clothes of shame, dirty, torn, ragged, defeated, but the crown of the son of David shines. There's victory, there's triumph. So we look through this list, and, and you look at these things of rule, presence, blessing, worship, triumph. But as you look at it in the Scriptures, it really doesn't play out that way. It sort of stumbles along uh, after David, after Solomon, the northern kingdom secedes. Under Rehoboam, they split and uh, just become increasingly pagan and apostate until finally the Lord brings the Assyrians to take them away, to remove them from the land, just as he did the Canaanites before them. The southern kingdom, Judah, uh, capital is Jerusalem, uh, does better overall. There are some good bright spots, some good kings along the way, but uh, they too uh, dwindle into apostasy until the Lord in his judgment brings the Babylonians to scrape them off the surface of the land, take them into exile in Babylon uh, for a period of time, although unlike the northern kingdom, there is a return to the land, rebuilding of the temple, the, the city. Uh, you read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and a new beginning, but, but rather humble and uh, un, unspectacular. So humanly speaking, you think, well, was it fulfilled? Well, on a strictly human level, no. But these promises are pointing to something far grander, far bigger. So let's look at it again in terms of the fulfillment, not in the Old Testament, but in the New, which was the true fulfillment that the Lord has in mind here. The rule of the Son of David, uh, verses 11 through 12, the Lord Jesus Christ reigns on uh, the throne of his kingdom. When, when Pilate asks, are you a king? It's kind of a hard question to answer. That's one reason why Jesus says, you say I'm a king. Uh, did you say this or did others tell you about me? Because he could say yes, but it could be completely misunderstood by Pilate, who would just see him as a political uh, and maybe military rival. That's why Jesus says, my, I am a king. My kingdom's not of this world. It's not the kind of kingdom you're used to thinking about. If it were, then my people would fight. They wouldn't let me be handed over. They would fight. But he says, my kingdom's not of this world. But don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, kind of probably what Pilate did. Okay, sure, right. You know, space kingdom, whatever. 
Um, don't make the mistake of thinking that just because it's not of this world, it is not a very real kingdom. In fact, if you're a believer here today, you are a citizen of that kingdom, as are uh, millions of your brothers and sisters who are gathered around the world today to worship. Uh, so rule the Lord Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection, his ascension, uh, wears that shining crown. Uh, his presence, we meet with him, he is present with us Today, uh, Jesus in, 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 uh, is spoken of in John 1, verse 18, where it says, uh, or, or verse 14, rather, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He's present with us. The temple represented the presence of God, but as Jesus points out in His ministry, that temple's going to be torn down. But the new temple is Jesus Himself the presence of God with his people. But even Jesus wasn't here. Jesus returned to the Father. And that the, that the presence of God with us now is not in a physical building, not in this building or any other church building. It's certainly it's not with us in the, in, in the body of Jesus because it's no longer here. But it's in the body of Christ, the church. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes reference to that. 1 Corinthians 3, he says to the believers in Corinth, do, do you all know, do you all not know that you are God's temple? You all plural. And that God's spirit dwells in you all together. But then in three chapters later, in chapter 6, where he's talking about Christ has purchased us, we belong to him, and are therefore to glorify him with our bodies. He says, do you not know that your body, singular, individually, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So whether we're talking of the church collectively, a group of us gathered here and God is present among us and with us, or whether we're talking about the individual Christian who has the Holy Spirit dwelling in his heart, we're talking about the presence of God with his people. So rule, the reigning Christ, who will rule till every enemy has been conquered, last enemy is death, uh, the presence of the Lord with us, the blessing of the Lord. Uh, we see this in uh, here as well in verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Jesus says in Matthew 6, why do you worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear? You know, the pagans spend their lives and energies running after all those things. He says, but you, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be provided for you. So blessing, the king provides for his people. Worship, again, we come to verse 16. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, her saints will shout for joy. So what we do here, we gather, we come together. Of course, in Presbyterian context, shout for joy may be metaphorical, but the fact is we do come uh, through the priesthood of Christ, come into the presence of God to, uh, to sing and to cry aloud when we sing uh, and praise him and acknowledge that he is the king and that he, he rules us, that he blesses us, he provides for us. So there is this, this worship in the new covenant context. We come through our Davidic king, the Lord Jesus and worship, and of course there is victory. His enemies I will clothe with shame. The strength of the of David uh, I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now, where is the victory? Where is the triumph? Look at the book of Acts. It's easy to think, well, the church is in such decline. It's it's not. It may be in certain places, but not in others. 
God is working in different ways in different parts of the world. Sometimes the soil the gospel is planted in is, is, is very fruitful and productive, and sometimes it seems to be like plowing rock and planting seeds and hoping for a harvest of one or two. But either way, God is is at work. The conversion, the salvation of even just one soul is an amazing thing and something to praise God for, let alone when 3,000, as in Acts 2, come to faith. Uh, and, and at times and places in the world where you see conversions on such a large scale. But the gospel is triumphing now, and it certainly will triumph. Of course, you turn to the book of Revelation to see that assurance of the ultimate victory of our king and his kingdom. Think, for example, in Revelation chapter 11, uh, where they fall before the Lord and say, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Make no mistake about it, dear friends, whatever the appearances may be, we are part of a kingdom that has triumphed, that is triumphing, and that will triumph in the end. The question is, are you a part of that kingdom? Have you submitted to the King, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you acknowledged the goodness of God, the grace of God in providing an anointed one, a Messiah, a Savior, so that recognizing our sin before the Lord, recognizing that we are enemies of the Lord, that we're not part of that kingdom that will be victorious. We confess our sins to him. We seek his forgiveness through his provision in Christ. We trust in Jesus as our Savior, and we bow the knee to him as our King. Let's pray. Father, we do. Give praise to you for your grace in sending the Son of David, our Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your coming into this world and winning the victory through the cross and the resurrection. Lord, we know you're reigning even now. We look forward to that day when even death itself will be no more. Lord Jesus, we trust in you and we acknowledge you and bow to you as our King. Father, I pray that this week in my life, in our lives, that our submission to you as our king would be evident in our devotion to you, our service to you, and our trust in you. And we pray it all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.